This is from the True Dharmai collection of koans. King Jesus, when a thief breaks in. The main case. Once Zen master Kingji Hongjin was asked by a monk, what happens when you are poor and a thief breaks in? Kingji said, the thief cannot take away everything. And the monk said, why can't the thief take away everything? Kingji said, because the thief is in the family. And the monk said, if the thief is in the family, how can it be that he turns out to be a thief? Kingji said, if there's no help from the inside, an outsider couldn't do anything. The monk said, if the thief is caught, who will get the reward? Kingji said, there has never been such a thing as a reward. The monk said, then hard work will, re will result in no accomplishment? Kingji said, it's not that there is no accomplishment. It's just that it does not last. The monk said, why does the accomplishment not last? And Kingji said, don't you see what I mean? Gaining a peaceful society is accomplished by a general, but it cannot be maintained by a general. The capping verse. Distinguishing enlightenment, dismantling delusion. The bandit leads the sheriff's brigade. Accomplishment, before it's exhausted, is just an extra thumb. You know, this practice appear, can appear to be quite demanding. What he's asking us to do, the places he's asking us to go to, what it is asking us to face. It's asking that we examine the, the patterns of high behavior a behavior we have come to rely on. And in a way, to mess with the sense of security, sense of comfort, familiarity, we derive from those patterns, habitual way of being. In other words, it's kind of like taking a sledgehammer and smash the very floor we are standing on. And by doing so, it's asking us to cultivate an innate ability to be grounded in reality and to not be swayed by, become fixated with the ups and downs of everyday life, to not be so impulsively reactive to how we feel, to situations we encounter, to what people do, to what they don't do, to what they say, to how they say it. In a way, to remain internally even while dealing with the inevitable turmoil of the world. Is this too much to ask of ourselves? Is this not possible, unattainable? Now, given what we know, given our past, given the experiences we've had, maybe the many times we fell on our face, given our issue with trust, which is across the board, all practitioners, and given our, the quickness of our reactivity, it seems as if this is too much to ask. 
Because it's very easy to justify old patterns of behavior or reactiveness. Now, within the fertile ground of our thinking mind, we create, create and maintain a perception of reality that keeps clashing with what we encounter. And because it clashes with it, it creates the illusion that what is happening should not be happening. That what we encounter, we should not encounter. At least not now. Maybe later, when I get more information. Or when I feel that I'm up for dealing with it. But right now, it's not what I want. And it's very persuasive, right? Those voices are... They seem very real. You know, and our perception of reality is actually based on very shaky parameters when we look just a bit beneath the surface. And those parameters are born from the combination of our limited senses our conditioning, and of course our karma. So based on this finicky system, what we think is happening is, is quite detached from what is really happening. So the question of reactivity, right? The question of what gives rise to the reactivity is essential to look at rather than take it for granted. Of course, I have to react in this way because the situation is dictating it. There is no other way to be, there is no other way to react, or at least it seems this way. Now we're going through rough stuff, rough patch with uh, one of uh, my twins, 15-year-old, and uh, it's pretty rocky and shaky and uh, roller coaster. So a couple of weeks ago, I was cooking dinner and uh, my other daughter, who was the twin, who is the twin, she she was doing homework uh, by the kitchen counter and then she stopped and she looked at me and she said, how can you be so okay with this? With what's happening? And she wasn't asking it to criticize, she just couldn't understand. But what does it mean to be okay with? Right? To be okay with something, so if you look attentive to what we're doing, right? So we are immersed in activity. And we're not pulling our hair out. It seems as if we are ignoring. It seems as if we are detached, not caring. But is it true? In other words, is are the eyes telling us exactly what we see? And then she said, are you okay with it? And of course, is there another option? Right? That's the more important question for us. So what if I'm not okay with, for example? Here's what's happening, and I'm not okay with it. I'm just going to sit there in the corner and concentrate all my efforts to resisting it and whine about it, complain about it. Then what's going to happen? We do have this somewhere, this belief that the more we resist, the more we whine and complain and somehow it's actually going to affect 
course, it makes no sense. Yet, it makes perfect sense when we act in those ways. In a way, we have created this system. We have to look the part. Right? If you don't look messed up, you probably don't care. If you don't look distraught or feel distraught, which is if you are pretending that something is not happening or checking out of the situation. We have in our society an unspoken expectation to be reactive, to create drama, to look the part. Even at work, especially corporate America. Somebody is too calm, too relaxed at work. Well, this person must really not care about their job, right? The more stressed out we look, we think the more caring we are. And it's quite the opposite. Because the more in tune we are, the more productive we can be. The more focused on the task, the situation, the job we can be. Or attending to another person, attending to what we need to attend to in regards to that person, in regards to helping that person. It goes to anything. Where is the attention? Where is the focus? What do we teach each other when we create drama? And we do a lot of it. And you know, sometimes I think when you don't feel discombobulated or completely distraught, and you feel at ease when something is going on, it's almost like you feel like, well, what's wrong with me? I should not feel this way. I should not be calm. I have a student who is a, he was a tennis player and a teacher for many years. And you know, of course, the game, he said, is based, all based on winning and losing. And he said he remembered when he was playing a game once. He, it was an amazing experience, and he actually lost that game. And then he felt really great after that. And then he started to doubt it. Why am I feeling so good? I should really feel like crap, because I lost the game. And then he was telling me about when he was coaching kids. He said when, when kids would play after the game, the parents the first question the parents would ask, did you win? Not did you have a good time, but did you win? You know, all these things really matter because we convey something. We almost teach each other that there are roles and we have to play the role. We have to play the part. Because with each situation, there's a list of do's and don'ts. We teach each other, we teach ourselves. So where is the attention, right? So when something happens, when, when we go through challenges or challenging times, we have to, as practitioners, we have to observe, where does my attention go? What steals my attention? Do I have a choice? Can I keep my attention on the task, on the situation? Look at it, listen to it. Ask what is needed right now of me in regards to this because it's brand new. It's brand new, it's all brand new. What we go through right now with, with one of my daughters is absolutely, we've never done it before. 
I don't have time to do anything else other than to focus on that. Meaning, no time to look at what else is going on in me in regards to that, and then allow that to be the primary focal point of attention. Because I'm clear on the fact that if I do that, if I allow it, and it's tempting for all of us, but if I allow it, my ability to meet the situation and respond to it will be greatly diminished. So to open up, to look, to listen from a different place, not from the floor of our conditioning, of our karma, which is not going anywhere anytime soon, but to look, from a, for, to, a, to look to a place where, a place that is always supporting, never judging, never quantifying, never labeling, does not have the capacity to label and judge. And the Buddha spoke about this with his son, Rahula, about being grounded and being non-reactive. And he said, Rahula, develop a mind that is like the four great elements. Because if you do this, pleasant or unpleasant sensory impressions that have arisen and taken hold of the mind will not persist. Just when people throw feces, urine, spittle, pus, or blood on the earth or in the water, in the fire or in the air, the earth, the water, the fire or air are not troubled, worried, or disturbed. So too, develop a mind that is like the four great elements. What do we learn from the ground? He's not saying that, obviously, in the way we are abusing our planet, yeah, it does affect things. He's not saying it will not affect things. All he's saying is that the ground doesn't mind even if we poison it. The water will not argue with us even if we, through our actions, poison It will be, we will allow us to poison it. Yet it will go on and find a way to move through that. It, go on, it will go on even if we destroy ourselves, destroy the planet. Things are going to be just fine. Things will keep flowing. We're not that great to change that. One of the things about you know, Buddhism is that it's like a, a fearless and unbiased reporter. He's not influenced by opinions. Doesn't care about being politically correct. And has the guts to say it as it is. And in doing so, he's telling us about the many ways we get trapped and the many ways we can find liberation. Now, in the simple practice of Zaza, we get to observe the workings of the mind. We get to observe the power of our emotions, the power of our memories. We get to observe it all, yet we don't move. We don't allow it to move us. Although I have to say, the first period today, there was movement. And this is not criticizing or chastising. This is just telling us we need to observe deeper 
Because if I'm not, if I'm allowing those patterns, those energies within to move my hand, to scratch an itch, or if my thumbs are moving while I keep the mudra, or if the body has this twitches and movement, I need to be aware of it. This is my practice, isn't it? Right? We need to become aware. We need to feel everything that's going on and become more and more and more and more aware of it with every period, every zazen period. So then I know I am moved. My body is moved by something. What's going on here? How do I meet that? So we turn our attention to the breath. We calm the body, right? We allow it, or we allow the ground to support the body. We teach the body. Everything is fine. The ground is here, supporting. So we allow that to happen. We breathe through that. And we work on not going with the temptation to fix something. Whether it's an itch, or the hair, or the robes, or the feet. No movement is no movement. And when we move, we have right there and there, we have to stop the tendency to feel really bad about it if you hear no movement from the jikido. No movement, period. It's not meant as criticism. It's meant as a reminder. Here, you're doing something that you're not aware of. Now become aware of it. Nothing more, nothing less. It means pay attention. Pay attention, right? To pay attention so we can actually meet reality as it is. See through the patterns of behavior that take over. Take over and steal reality from us in broad daylight. So this koan has many facets. One of them is is try to shed light on understanding how to recognize this act of thievery and how to quell the impulsivity to follow our patterns. So it brings up a dialogue between Master Kingji and one of his monks, his disciples. And the monk asked, what happens when you are poor and a thief breaks in? And Kingji said, the thief cannot take away everything. And the footnote says, if it is really a destitute family, then there is nothing to take away. And as we know, to be destitute is a compliment in Zen. To empty out completely. You know, when we observe, we look, and we see that we're actually very vested in a certain kind of behavior. We, vested in, we are vested in identifying with what these behaviors represent. Who am I in all this? What am I in the way we hold on to what we try to let go of. And sometimes by trying to let go of it, we actually end up holding on even tighter. So 
So if it is really a destitute family, then there is nothing to take away, right? Because we're not holding on, we're not guarding, we're not identifying. We dwell nowhere. And if this monk dwelled nowhere, this question would not even arise. So the monk said, why can the thief take everything away? The footnote says, you are really the only one who knows where things are hidden. Right? And it's pointing at something. Who is taking away from who? Who is deceiving who? And King he says, because the thief is in the family. The thief is in the family. It's actually very common to, to think that uh, you know, we are doing all this work to fight this thing we call the ego. And we think we are going to, or this practice will help us to defeat that. I don't often use that word because it has a lot of, it's loaded, a lot of connotations. And it actually has, and it keeps us in the idea of there is this and there is me who will defeat at the end of the day, at some point will defeat this thing. And I will conquer. When in a way, you know, thinking this way only strengthen that which we are trying to free ourselves of. Because it validates an adversary, someone or something to fight. So King Ji says, because the thief is in the family, and the monk says, if the thief is in the family, how can it be that he turns out to be a thief? Under the line, because the thief is in the family, the footnote says, parental commitment knows no limits. And if you have children, you know what that means. Parental commitment knows no limits. You know, and, and there's a lot of truth there, because in a way, when, when we look at our habits, when we look at what is taking over. It's a very whiny voice within us. Very whiny, nagging voice. That unless it gets its way, does not, will not stop to complain. And even when it does get its way, it doesn't stop. Demanding. It will still push and fight and argue. Who is the master and who is the servant? So if the thief is in the family, how can it be that he turns out to be a thief? And the footnote says, a stranger wouldn't know his way around the house. We're really good at stealing from ourselves or deceiving ourselves because we know exactly what works. We know how to sell, we know how to buy. We know how to buy, we know how to sell. Right? So we, we package it in a way that is very convincing. Of course I'm going to react this way because... I don't think we ever react in, in ways that are, I mean, our reactivities are always justifiable. If anybody will ask, it, it won't take more than a split second to find many reasons for that, for the reactivity, for the harmful behavior.
even for the movement in Zazen. Even for our restlessness. We always have explanations for everything. But what makes this practice so powerful that he's not asking us to explain. That we already know. It's asking us to put the explanations down and just be still. So the footnote says a stranger wouldn't know his way around the house and it's hinting that the deceiver and the deceived may actually know each other very well. Maybe the perpetrator and the victim are not two. But if we don't investigate, if we don't examine, if we don't stop moving and look, we just fight ourselves. There's no way to know. There's no way to encounter what's really going on. But how do we steal from ourselves? <clears throat> how do we encounter reality? You know the gang of six thieves? Do you remember those? It's a question. Major, didn't you mention that recently? Who are the six thieves? What are the six thieves? Our senses. Right. Exactly. Right? Smelling, touching, feeling, seeing, hearing, thinking, of course, tasting. The only ways we know how to interact with reality, those ways are blamed to be Thieves that steal reality. This, of course, makes no sense. So what do we do? Right? So in the Chapana Sutra, I want to just talk about it for, you know, for a few minutes because I did bring it up a while ago, but once in a while, it's good to remind ourselves what we meant, to, what we are meant to be doing when we sit in zazen. So the Buddha talked about this in Chapana Sutra, using an analogy of six animals, and he begins by he began by discussing the, the discipline using the term restraint and lack thereof. And he said, "What is lack of restraint? There is the case where a monk, or us, practitioner, seeing a form with the eye, is obsessed with pleasing forms, is repelled by unpleasing." Forms and remain with body mindfulness unestablished, with limited awareness, he does not discern as it actually is present, the awareness release, the discernment release, where any evil, unskillful mental qualities that have arisen utterly cease without remainder. And this is a description of someone who is still bound by his or her senses, and therefore automatically runs towards what is pleasing and away from what is not pleasing. It says hearing a sound with the ear, smelling an aroma with the nose, tasting a flavor with the tongue, touching a tactile sensation with the body, cognizing an idea with intellect. He's obsessed with pleasing ideas and repelled by unpleasing ideas and remained with body mindfulness unestablished. Limited awareness does not discern as it actually is present. The awareness release, discernment release. It does not see that things actually arise and vanish without remaining. Then he goes on to describe this process using an analogy of six animals. So those animals are a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a hyena, and a monkey. And then he says, suppose you will take each of those animals and you tie them with a rope, six ropes. And then you take the other ends of those ropes and you tie them together in a knot. And then you release them. 
and what's going to happen. And he says, then those six animals of different ranges and different habitats would each pull towards its own range and habitat. The snake would pull thinking, I'll go into the anthill. The crocodile would pull thinking, I'll go into the water. The bird would pull thinking, I'll fly into the air. The dog would th pull thinking, I'll go into the village. The hyena would pull thinking, I'll go into the channel house. The monkey would pull thinking, I'll go into the forest. So then when these six animals become internally exhausted, they would submit, they would surrender, they would come under the sway of whichever amongst them was the strongest. So one of them will conquer and the other five will follow. Now, of course, you know, the sixth one, as you know, the sixth sense is the brain in Buddhism. In Buddhism, it is considered, the brain is considered a sense organ, a governing sense organ that takes information from all the other five senses, analyzes it, comes up with a picture, and then acts, and then we act based on that. We speak and act based on what we think is going on. And then he says, in the same way, when the practitioner whose mindfulness immersed in the body is undeveloped and unpursued, the eyes pulls towards pleasing forms while, while unpleasing forms are repelled. The, ears, the ear pulls towards pleasing sounds, the nose pulls towards pleasing aromas, the tongue towards pleasing flavors, the body pulls towards pleasing tactile sensations, the intellect pulls towards pleasing ideas. What, what, what we don't want to think about is being put aside. This is what is called lack of restraint. And then he goes on to talk about restraint. What is restraint? The reason the case where a practitioner seeing a form with the eye is not obsessed with pleasing form, is not repelled by unpleasing forms, and remains with body mindfulness established and immeasurable awareness. He discerns as it actually is present, the awareness release, the sermon release, where all evil unskillful mental qualities that have arisen utterly cease without remainder. So a description of someone who is not bound by senses, and able to see that what arises vanishes without remainder. And therefore, nothing is created of it when it arises, and nothing is created of it when it vanishes. Dwelling nowhere. Right? As we've been talking about with the diamond suit. So then he goes on back to the six animals and he says, now let's go to that experiment again. So you tie each of them with a rope. So now instead of taking those, the ends of those six ropes and tying them to a knot, you take a stake and you put it in the ground, deep in the ground, solid ground, and you tie the ends of each of those ropes to that stake. And then you release them. What's going to happen? The same thing is going to happen. Each of those animals naturally pulls towards its habitat. That's what it knows to do. Yet nothing happens. No movement is going to happen beyond the rope, the length of the rope. So when those animals become exhausted, entirely exhausted, they just come by the post, sit by it, and relax because they are internally exhausted because it doesn't work. Now you can imagine that the stake, the post, is your zazen, is our practice. Which means if we move in zazen, we are allowing one of those senses to take over. It's a very important part of practice. Because if we do it in Zazen, I mean, if we allow it to, to happen in Zazen, we allow it to happen off the cushion. And off the cushion is a lot more important, right? Because off the cushion, we can create a lot of suffering. We do create a lot of suffering. 
when we allow one of those senses to take over. And when they take over, the rest of the body follows. So the practice, the training, not just in Zazen, but the entire practice, is to observe those senses in real time, to learn how they operate, and to learn to not make a big deal of it. And he says, thus you should train yourselves. He says, we will develop mindfulness immersed in the body. We will pursue it. Hand it the reins and take it as, as basis. Give it a grounding. We will steady it, consolidate it, and set it about properly. That is how you should train yourself. The words of the Buddha. Knowing very well the agony we personally experience off and on the cushion. Here's the script. That's what we have to do. The job description of a practitioner. What he's talking about is how we meet situations. Do we even have the awareness to see, to recognize what is pulling us, how we get trapped? Whether it's circumstances we encounter, other people we meet, I mean, all these things, right, can only trap the perceptions we create of them. And the way we create perception is born out of the way we interpret what is happening. And by themselves, the six senses actually do not have the power to create anything. Not to create anything that will last, anyway. We make it last. We validate it. We make it real. It definitely feels real. You know, Rinzai said, the six rays never cease to emit the great light. And the six rays are the six senses. They never actually cease to emit the great light. They never cease to reflect the ground that the Buddha spoke of with Rahula, his son. They actually do show reality as it is. At the second, something is going on. A split second later, there's already the impressions or the perceptions that we create. And that ends up becoming the focal point of attention. Or well, that ends up being the bubble in which we reside. So then the monk is asking, if the thief is caught, who will get the reward? And Kingji says, there has never been such a thing as a reward. And the Putna says, don't you see? There is no payoff. There's just a road ahead. In fact, just even to think, even to think in such a way of, I am going to do this because it will free me from myself. Even that is a trap by itself or will lead to a new trap. Because what if I fall on my face again? Then does that mean that Zazen doesn't work? Should I quit? Should I try something else? A different path? Different practice? 
So then the monk is asking, then hard work will result in no accomplishment. That's, and this question actually makes perfect sense to this person who was asking it, but also to us. Right? Because we do things, whatever it is we do, most times we do them with some idea of it's going to benefit me in some way. Chojin, could you close those windows? Because if I think it's not going to benefit me, I'm not going to do it. And if I think it will benefit me, then of course the question is, how do I discern? How do I measure benefit? Do I know how to measure? Do I know when the benefit will meet my expectation of it? I think we know from our own experiences that it doesn't work. So King Ji said, it's not that there is no accomplishment, it's just that there is, it does not last. And the footnote says, let it go and get on with your life. As for the revolving wheel of the Dharma, no thought is wasted over it. We chant after the meal. No thought is wasted over it. And it should be in parentheses and everything else that's happening. Don't waste a thought, an ounce of energy over it. So at the end of the dialogue, the monk is still pushing, and so he asked, why does the accomplishment not last? King Ji said, don't you see what I mean? Gaining a peaceful society is accomplished by a general, but it cannot be maintained by a general. We need to be utterly disciplined, of course. We have to be disciplined. Because the habits, or the way we use our senses, will trap us. So we have to take the reins. We have to work on being the masters. We have to work on not moving or becoming aware of, at the beginning, large movements, and then as you go deeper and deeper into practice, tiny twitches of the body. All of it. And become the masters. And choose to not move. And when Zazen is over, you move. Get up, go. Do what's, what's required, what's needed. No questions, no answers, no thoughts, no waste. then we can truly be effective, compassionate, loving, caring, kind. Because no thought is wasted anywhere else. Because all the six senses are united. United in working on what needs to be worked on, in attending what needs to be attended. They're not pulling in different directions, fighting one another. But it takes courage. It takes a lot of courage and guts 
to want to face, to want to work through, to look within, to go to where it hurts. A while ago, somebody asked me about this dragon we have on the Kamizan, the one with the pearl and its claws. So I told him that in the course of Zen training, we each must go into the cave of demons and face the fierce blue dragon. Not blue, but this is the one. Snatch the pearl of wisdom from the claw. So then he asked, who is the blue dragon? And this is a question only you can answer. And the way to answer it is, well, the only way to answer it is by actually going to the dark cave of the dragon. Not knowing what's there. And it could be paralyzing fear that's preventing us from actually doing it. But that's okay, because we're up for that. And we do it anyway. And we snatch the pearl of wisdom. And then we know. In a totally different way.